Welcome to episode 89 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring Chris Corfist, Director of Education at Reflexive Performance Reset. Chris Corfist is the true definition of a Renaissance man, public school history teacher by day and mad scientist by choice. Who else has a sick guitar collection and can play tunes like this? while also having a garage gym. Uh, But it's a gym and we have, I think I probably have some of the best equipment out there. I have a 1080 Sprint, I've got K-boxes, I've got gym aware, I've got all kinds of stuff to really give my clients the best of what's out there. I can now sort of see why many of you wanted him on the podcast. And the number one topic requested for him was none other than RPR or Reflexive Performance Reset. So what is Reflexive Performance Reset? Well, RPR is a system of breathing and wake-up drills that resets our body to take us out of compensation patterns uh, so we perform at our best, and we think that it pretty much goes through the nervous system, which is why you see such fast changes when you see someone get reset. And why is RPR important in the Strength Coach's Toolbox? Well, for that, you're going to have to listen to the podcast. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Story Performance Podcast. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Chris Corfist. Chris, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you tonight? I'm doing really well. Finally, glad to get over all the technical issues we were having and excited to this podcast recording started. Yeah, I'd like to thank Skype for all the headaches this evening. So, Chris, for all the listeners that may not know about you, could you just give us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you currently do? Currently, I'm a U.S. history teacher at Hinsdale Central, but that's not why you're listening. I am a track slash strength coach that wears a lot of different hats. I am the director of education for Reflexive Performance Reset. I am the co-director of Track and Football Consortium, which holds biannual seminars, bringing in some of the best people in the country to talk about training and trying to mix football and track together. I'm a track coach at Hinsdale Central and Montini High Schools, and I own Slow Guy Speed School, which is uh, actually, it's my basement, uh, but it's a gym and we have, I think I probably have some of the best equipment out there. I have a 1080 Sprint, I've got K-boxes, I've got gym aware, I've got all kinds of stuff to really give my clients the best of what's out there. Basically, if you name it and you probably have it in your basement. Yeah. And if it's a reject, it's on the side of my house with my wife complaining about it collecting <laughs> dust out there and rusting and it needs to go somewhere. So Chris, the the main reason I'm super excited since the podcast has grown, I've run into uh, probably a good problem is I, I get a ton of emails and direct messages via Twitter from people saying, hey, I want to hear from this guy or this is what I want to hear about. And um, I typically choose uh, recurring themes or recurring subjects. One that kept on coming up was Reflexive Performance Reset, or RPR, which you're the director of education. So I was like, who better to talk about it than than you? <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, start off, could you give us an overview of Reflexive Performance Reset? You know, w- what exactly is it? Where they come from? Well, RPR is a system of breathing and wake-up drills that resets our body 
to take us out of compensation patterns. Uh, so we perform at our best and we think that it pretty much goes through the nervous system, which is why you see such fast changes when you see someone get reset. You know, you'll see strength coaches do mobility work and other things that seem to take a long time. Uh, it's kind of, I'm not going to knock anyone, but sometimes you hear people, you know, we do this for six weeks and you'll start to see a change. And then we can put someone up on the table and you see massive change immediately. You don't want to do videos about that because everyone's going to say it's, you know, oh no, that doesn't work. You know, it's all set up. But once you're on the table and you see it work, it's like, wow, you know, look at these changes. Um, easy ones that we do, just basic flexibility changes. Um, and you'll see quite a, a, a change when you get someone's body reset. You get their breathing in, in sync with their body and you get their muscles and the psoas and glutes to working. Uh, because what we think happens is the body recognizes the pattern as a natural system or a, a natural recruitment pattern, and it will give the muscle length. Whereas if it's protecting, um, your body's in a constant imploding state. You, you're always protecting yourself. And when your body realizes that I don't have to protect myself, I can perform, it will give the muscle length, it will give the muscle strength, you know, that kind of stuff. And so what we like to say is we're teaching the body how to explode, how to, how to extend, how to not protect, how to perform better. Uh, whereas when you're in a you know, fight or flight mode, uh, you're constantly protecting something. I mean, it can be something as simple as, you know, you have a tender spot in your ribs. Well, you, that's usually connected to something not working well. So your immediate response to any kind of stimulus is to protect that spot. I mean, really what happens is, you know, your your brain is looking at all these different things that could possibly happen, and you've got to protect things that you know that are very tender. You've got to do that. And what we try and do is take you out of that state and uh, get you to perform. So let's say you, you, you have an athlete. I, I know that you mentioned that if you take a video of it, you know, some people might look at it and be like, uh, this is all stage. So um, you, you have an athlete. He comes to you. What happens with this uh, individual? How are they assessed in order to figure out what resets they specifically need? Well, so we see it as a, a systematic thing where we don't see it as one muscle that might be off or needs to be activated or reset or whatever term you want to use. Because I know there's muscle activation, MAT, muscle activation, ART. We try to see the body as more of a entire system. So we always look to see what creates hip flexion and what creates hip extension. We break it down quite simply. And that's really part of the magic of this is not only its simplicity, but uh, the sequence of how things work. And so in a perfect world, your psoas is going to initiate hip flexion. It is not the main mover. Otherwise, we'd have a butt in our belly. It is the initiator of movement. And if that's not working, you're going to push it down the chain to get something else to flex that hip. It could be a quad, a calf, an arm, a jaw, a tongue. It could be a thousand other things that gets that hip to initiate that movement forward. And likewise, Extension, you can use your butt, ideally, but you can also use your hamstring, your lower back. Cal Dietz has done a great video series on YouTube uh, on hip extension and your different ways that you can find or compensate to not use your glute. Um, and again, those are your glute is a major muscle, and if you're in a protection phase, you're going to shut that down because you don't want to put power into something that you don't feel stable about. You know, I always use the analogy of, you know, there's a grizzly bear chasing you. You're not going to find the fastest way. You're going to find the safest way because if you find the fastest way and you're not ready for that, something's going to give, and now you're the dummy on Revenant. You know, if we can get you to perform 
and your body feels comfortable with that, then it's going to give that glute power. We go through that assessment. We figure out what makes you move. And from there, we reset. Uh, we usually start, we always start with breathing. Breathing ties into the psoas <clears throat> and uh, your diaphragm ties into the psoas. And from there, uh, we can get into the, your body to relax through breathing and find a relaxed state. Uh, we call them performance breaths, but they're really belly breaths. Uh, and from there, we get into the psoas, and then we do the glute, and we go through the whole chain of how we think the body should recruit. If you're, you're a strength coach and that's out there, and you want to learn more about reflexive performance reset, uh, whether it's like upcoming courses or even know a little bit more about it, you know, how can you go about getting that information? Uh, that's on reflexiveperformance.com. Uh, that is the site that... Uh, Cal Deeds, Jail Holdsworth, and myself run. Uh, the three of us run it. Uh, we are the performance uh, branch of Be Activated, which is Douglas Heels. Douglas actually created the whole system. He's been sharing it with the world. We kind of took it over from a performance coach standpoint. Uh, we tried to make it easier uh, to understand so more coaches, especially younger coaches, could get on board and start using it. Tried to streamline it a little bit more so it wasn't a, a two-day event like be activated is we, we try to make it in one day and get in and out because we know coaches have a lot to do and not a lot of us like to give up our weekends because in a coach's world, it's very rare that you get a weekend. So that's what we've done with RPR and the, uh, the website is reflexiveperformance.com. Um, there's also a ton of stuff online now, uh, all kinds of people sharing their stories. Uh, when JL took hold of it, started sharing it with all the elite fitness crew, uh, you have Dave Tate, uh, all kinds of people talking about the different changes they had uh, at Dave Tate's thing in Columbus about a month ago. He got up and gave a very testimonial about his path. You know, his goal was to break his record at his older age and how RPR was a major part of that. Um, and he could put weight on his back and, and he broke his record. He squatted more than he ever did. Chris, what, the, what does a uh, RPR course look like? What's more or less the the schedule for the entire day. What is a strength coach going to learn at this course? Well, we're going to start off by going over, well, actually we start off by looking at a lot of research that we've done. And it's, again, it's not fancy research. It's a lot of what Cal Dietz does up at University of Minnesota with his, uh, with all of his equipment, Omega Wave and things that he's seen and measured. Uh, and then we start looking at the body and I would say 90% of the time you are hands on practicing the technique and by the time you leave you should be able to walk out and reset the first person you see out the door chris as a maybe a, a quick follow-up to all of this um i know that you're the director of education you probably use uh rpr with some of your athletes um would you have like a specific case study or practical application where it's helped tremendously with uh one of the athletes that you're with like i got a a hundred stories. I would say the genesis of this is me not being able to help one of my athletes. Uh, a number of years ago, I had a, a stud of a sprinter uh, who did everything that I asked him to do. And going into his senior year, uh, he was running some really hot times. One of the times he ran uh, at the indoor conference meet, which was disallowed because the FAT didn't pick up numbers five and six. I think he ran the fastest time in the country in the 55. And where I'm thinking great things. I mean, this is the kid that I've been waiting for my entire life. And then we go to outdoor. 
it's not even week one. We're doing exchanges, you know, even kind of screwing around exchanges. And he got a, his hamstring got him. I'm thinking this kid did everything I've ever asked him to. And this is what happened to him. And I can't explain it to him. And now uh, I can explain it. I can figure out I can what's going on. I can say, hey, you know, your glute was probably off. And before that, we would have even gotten to that point. I could have checked his glutes and, and checked his whole pattern and make sure everything was good. So since then, uh, and that was seven years ago, I haven't had a hamstring pull. Uh, in fact, I've had very minimal soft injury tissue or soft tissue injuries. Uh, Cal Dietz has seen the same thing up at University of Minnesota. Cal's kind of crazy, and he tracks hours and minutes missed by people with soft tissue injuries, and it's minimal. I mean, it's for the thousands of hours of practice, I think he's got a couple hours of people that missed because of soft tissue injury. Uh, and that's really what we want. We want our athletes to be safe, and we want them to perform great. It's pretty well documented that down at state track meet, uh, I open up my table, and anyone who wants to be reset, I reset them. And we've had kids go out and break state records, and that happened last year and the year before. So there's all kinds of stories. Uh, I had one sprinter my last year at York High School, and this is, this is a crazy story. Born in Nigeria, not the best facilities. Uh, and when the doctor grabbed him, broke his arm, and his arm never really rehealed. Uh, so it was kind of like a shortened arm, and it was constantly bent. And he couldn't ever straighten it. And it, it kind of, you know, it messed with his running a little bit, like he couldn't get down in the blocks, couldn't hold the baton in one hand, that kind of thing. We reset him. Uh, Douglas actually was here for this, and uh, we reset him. And Douglas got that arm to go straight. The scary part was he had to relearn to use that arm. And it took him about six weeks to figure that out uh, before he was running like he did. Because his nickname was the Rocket. But sure enough, going into the you know the sectionals in state, he lit it up. And he had his arm. You know, he could get down in blocks. He could grab a baton. The whole thing. And I know that's an extreme story, but that's it's wild stuff. And I think anyone who has had experience with this can share similar stories where, you know, whether it's Dave Tate who doesn't shake with a bar on his back, uh, different people have done come back from all kinds of injuries and people have broken all kinds of PRs. People down in Austin, Texas, I went down and did a thing in the fall in Austin uh, and they just had a big powerlifting meet and they're all smashing the records. Like I said before, when your body's working the way it's supposed to work and big muscles are doing the work of what they should be doing, you know, you're going to get better performances. First time you come, I videotape you running, I videotape you jumping. We break it down. We look to see what's going on. Uh, I'll reset someone, put them on the mat, have them jump again. I've seen people, you know, one or two inches. Uh, crazy story is a professional tennis player came. <laughs> we put six inches on his vertical jump just by resetting him. And I know it's crazy stuff. And everyone says, well, there's no way that can happen. But when you see it happen and you, ha you hear people's stories in the sincerity that they tell them with, you know, it, it's, it's just weird. And I think that's a barrier that we have is people just don't believe uh, because it's, it doesn't seem right. But like I said, it, because we think we're tripping the neural system and it's a, a pattern that your body wants and it understands, it's going to give you that power. It's going to give you that, that movement. It's going to give you that, that explosion that, that we're all looking for when we play. Chris, uh, shift gears a bit now from RPR. Another area that I want to talk to you about the 1080 system or specifically the 1080 sprint. Um, as you mentioned, you have tons of some pretty cool gadgets down at your basement gym. 
when did you first learn about uh, 1080? Um, and when did you start using the 1080 Sprint Machine? And also, what is it? The 1080 Sprint Machine is it's kind of like a running computer. This metal box, and inside is a computer that controls a cylinder that's got about 100 meters of cable on it, really thin cable for sailing. So you can easily spool that onto there. That connects to your Surface, your Microsoft Surface. And from there, you can control not only the drag or the tension that you would pull the line with, but you can also pull someone back at overspeed. And so when that happens on your Surface, you get... All the data you could pot, real-time data that you could possibly want uh, on someone, like how fast they're running, power that they're putting out, uh, the force that they're putting out, um, and then you can download it onto you download your results onto the computer, which can be again instant, and then you can look at uh, force per kilogram, power per kilogram, and then you can figure out where to adjust the settings so you know you're pulling at you know you're getting the best bang for your buck you're creating you're forcing the athlete to create the most power and the most force based on the tension that you put on the cable and what's cool about it is the over first of all the whole thing is cool but on the overspeed training like let's say i got a kid that runs 10 meters per second and we know the research has shown that you don't want to go any faster than five meters per second well never before has there been anything that can actually gauge how fast someone is going. So with this machine, I take you back 100 meters, I, you take off, and I'm watching how fast you run. And I can say the kid's going 10 meters per second. I hit a button twice, and now he's going, or three times, and now he's going 10.3 meters per second. Want to prick it up a little bit? Okay, we're going to go 10.5 meters per second. And I know how to do that because I know I can see from the graph that he's not breaking and, you know, he's not overstriding, that it's a true overspeed. So from there, if you want to do lateral movement, this, again, you can pull this thing any direction you want. It's not a straight linear cable. It can go anywhere. Um, I can make you side shuffle, pull out hard and put a lot of force on it but then pull you back faster than you would normally come back, which means I'm creating an overload, a plyometric overload, where you have to plant, absorb that energy, and shoot back in the other direction. It's all that balled up into one machine. Chris, yeah, I think one one interesting aspect of this, I, I know I was listening to another podcast um, from a researcher who was uh, actually talking about the the lack of research that there is in terms of uh, overspeed training and top end speed simply because there's no real way to actually track that prior to 1080 sprint. I think this is going to have some fairly interesting implications, even from, from the research standpoint. Um, it's, it, it's again, it's it's new stuff. Um, been talking a lot with Ken Clark lately and his new two two level mass model creating force. And, and we think that there is a huge there could be a huge benefit with the 1080 and actually generating or teaching the body to run faster and creating more force when you hit just the right speed, when you pull someone back, the overspeed training. And it's funny when you know you hit it. Uh, the first year I had this machine, I've, this is coming up on three years I've had this machine now. I think I'm one of the first people in the United States that had it. And again, it was one of those stupid things that 
I really didn't want it. And I didn't know, and I knew how expensive it was. And it was the Sunday morning after the state track meet. I was in any mood to do any training. You know, I've been going all season. And Peter shows up at my door at nine o'clock. Oh man, I really don't want to do this. And I said, all right, let's go over to the high school. We'll give it a run. I called one of my guys over who's a you know, NFL guy, guy getting ready for NFL type thing, who I've been training since high school. And it was great when we did the acceleration. It was really cool. But when we did the overspeed training and I saw the smile on his face, he goes, coach, you've got to feel this. You would not believe what this makes you do. And I thought, oh, man, how much is it again? I don't know if I can do this. How am I going to do this? How am I going to explain this to my wife? Uh, so he stuck around. And I had, you know, in the afternoon, Sunday afternoons, I train groups. And I have lots of kids come by. And he stuck around and he tied up every kid that came and did all kinds of stuff with it. And I was like, yeah, I got to have this. There's no way this completely undoes any other thing that I have, you know, because I can get this data and I can, I can do so much with it and, and really make the training exact for each athlete. And so I bought it. Chris, so you, you're a track, track and field coach at, two different high schools and also you have uh, your own, I guess, private gym um, with, within your house. So you're dealing with a lot of high school sprinters and runners predominantly. Um, how is the main way that you've been able to utilize a 1080 sprint with that specific age group and population? Well, just from the acceleration standpoint, uh, it's pretty quick and easy. Uh, it's just as it really relies about how fast you can pull in the cable and the cable can come in at 14 meters per second. So you really have the kid drop the belt, you suck it back up, you put the next kid in. And on the interface, on the surface, you have everyone's name, and you just click on their name and you hit new. And I've got everyone's runs recorded. And so I can get through a pretty big group of people really fast. And I've found that really, if I mean, if you're, if you're at the right tension, it only takes a couple reps and then you'll see them really drop off quickly. And, uh, then, you know, to cut them, you know, when you go from, let's say, you know, your first one, you do 951 Watts. And then the second one was a thousand Watts. And then the third one was 1030. And then the fourth one was 790. Yeah, dude, you're done. You're done with your workout. Move on. So we've been able to do that, uh, with the acceleration stuff. It's been pretty good. And when it gets warmer out, cause I have learned that it's not great to do overspeed training when it's cold. You have one person run down, runs his acceleration, and you can lessen the tension on the band as it pulls out. So after maybe 30 meters, there'll be, you can have no, you can have like one kilogram of tension on the band. So it's like running with nothing. So like a true sprint where you want some resistance at the beginning. But once you're up running, you, the dragging or the, the pulling at top end speed is really doesn't do much for you. And so he finishes it. The other kid puts the band on. I know what he's, I know what his fly time is, so I know how fast he runs. And I pull him back. And so it's kind of like this one person goes down, another one person comes back. So it, it's really quick. Um, it's just as fast as you can change a belt and hit buttons. What I've found with my kids, my athletes, you can really improve their power output and their force output. And we've had some, because I'm in a basement in the wintertime and I don't have access to a track. Uh, my basement, I have a long basement, which is great. It's 25 yards long, about 20 yards long. 
so we do tens, we do block tens and we kind of stop it at about eight meters uh, because the wall comes really fast, but we've had some incredible, some pretty dramatic drops in time in that short five to eight meter segment. And what we've learned is as power goes up or force, uh, you can have a dramatic change in time. And we've, we've trained to do that with this machine. Uh, and that was one thing I always thought was interesting is you may have a really forceful person, which is how fast are you getting to step one? And they won't have as much power, but, or you may have some that can't put out as much force, but they can put out a lot of power to get those really good times. And so really you can get an idea. It, you know, part of it is, you know, you don't need as much power if you've got this great force, uh, but those people have a lot of power and not a lot of force. You know, you know what you need to work on uh, you know, for that first step quick, quickness. And really that's the key. You know, if you look at, you know, the research from France and what those guys are showing, you know, 80% of the difference between a, a, a 10 flat and a 10 five sprinter is before the first step even happens. And so in any sport, soccer, whatever, if you can get your momentum going faster than the other guy, even if you're a poor runner, yeah, you're going to get to the ball first. And I think this guy that ran that four, two, two in the combine, you know, once he gets going, he's got that foot turned out and he's rolling through. He's got such a great acceleration and great creates so much force at the beginning of his run that he can't help but to run that fast. He just has to not fall, which I think he's on the verge of falling. You can see him sometimes, especially when he finishes. It's almost like he's going to tumble. Yeah, I, I know that uh, since we're on the topic of it and seeing the difference between those guys, uh, for for some of your more developed athletes when it comes to sprinters, do you do any type of uh, force velocity profiling on them? We do that with the 1080, but we also use, I use gym aware, but what I've found is most of the people on the force velocity curve, and I get, I, this is kind of a bad way to answer your question, but we found that really velocity work does wonders. So we have people that the overspeed jumps, uh, you hang the rubber bands from the wall and jump. We do I have a shuttle MVP in my basement. Uh, we do one band or no band. And so you really get this huge contraction where there's no, you know, your body, your body knows it has to move, but there's nothing to move. So it will contract faster. And that's a, a great way to work that velocity aspect. And we've seen some big changes with some pretty advanced athletes when we do just hardcore velocity uh, and they come back and they jump really well. I mean, put an inch or two on their vertical jump. So I don't think I answered your question very well, did I? <laughs> on the force velocity curve uh, for power work, we do. I kind of do the Hank Krajenhoff method, uh, the old uh, micro muscle lab stuff. And I just find where you're putting out the most power and I stay there. And when I feel like we're not going anywhere, then I'll go back to velocity. Uh, and we do do some force work. I think the K-Box is a great force machine constant pressure uh, you've got to push really hard uh, you can hold that plate and really push hard in the pad and then let go of the plate and make them accelerate it and that's kind of how we do force and i have some isokinetic or some you know piston machine some isokinetic jumper you know the old-fashioned leaper that's you know constant force you have to push really hard and you know i get scared i hate to say it but i get scared using some some big weight because I've seen some people, their, their form goes to hell and it creates all these problems with muscle slack. Uh, when you start to pick up a heavy weight and your spine changes shape and you know, that's not how they move, uh, with a curved spine or a curved back or the head does weird things. 
So I really try and stay away from the really heavy weight because I don't want them to change their, their posture when they move because I know that's not that's going to have minimal carryover to when they, they actually play. Yeah, and I know that you recently wrote an article for Just Fly uh, specifically talking about how you go about uh, training some of those individuals in, in your basement gym and along with some of the equipment that you have. And again, the shuttle MVP is great too. You can really weight that down and not change body shape because there's nothing pushing down on you. Uh, you just got to kick. It's, I mean, it's a pure concentric push. You can put a lot of weight on that thing. And you got to push really hard, especially if you're on one leg. I've got a way I do it with one leg. It's kind of crazy. But you really have to create force. You really have to change momentum. And you have to move your body mass uh, on that sled. And I think that's one thing that misses missing from weightlifting is, okay, I'm squatting, but how much am I really moving my body mass? You know, maybe 18 inches? You know, I want to move it three, four feet. That's what I really want to do on my first step. And so that's kind of how I've changed the way I see things when we when we lift weights or cre- learn how to create force, which again is why the 1080 is so great, is I can really weight you down on that. And there's no weight on you or anything. It's just when you go to move, you've got to move really hard. Uh, I think Ken Clark came up with a cool idea. We were talking about stuff. And I've done it with my football players. Uh, I train a football team too. <laughs> uh, we push a sled uh, two steps. You put your body weight on the sled and you shove it two steps and you you track how far you can shove it. You know, maybe not quite 100%, but 80%, something in there. And again, that's you're moving your body mass and you're creating force. You've got to stomp down on the ground to move that thing. And I thought that was a really clever way to, to deal with that. Yeah, he is a really clever guy. I was just, that, that was who I was just listening to this podcast. And there's actually a lot of good, good takeaways that I, I got from him. Yeah, he'll be out at uh, Track and Football Consortium this summer in June. Uh, he's one of our speakers. Fantastic. And Chris, if you want to provide me with the information, I'll, I'll make sure to link it in the show notes of this episode. The next thing I wanted to talk about, and this is something that I've heard you talk about in previous podcasts and is an area that I'm actually really interested in is um, manipulating the environment in order to get specific outcomes from your athletes rather than just relying on verbal cues. So I was wondering how you, um, if you could give some examples of how you've done that, um, particularly with some some of your uh, speed drills. So this is Franz Bosch stuff. Again, really smart guy. We're trying to get the body to do to, to for some to make some kind of movement you know and let's say in our case it's get your knee up and get your foot off the ground as fast as you can uh, your body may not want to do that and so we have to train it to do that and i, I guess a better way to, of saying it is your body may want to do the wrong thing when you move uh, it, it's doing what it thinks it wants to do but we have to show it that that's the wrong way i think that's the best way to look at it and so if you can create a scenario where you're creating the body to fail, you're actually teaching it to move the right way. So we'll start from the ground up here. Uh, one of the things that I, I really like to focus on is toe off. Uh, can you roll through to your big toe and drive through your big toe? And if you know a little bit about the foot, you have uh, a, a part of your foot that rolls the power through, and then you have a profile propulsive part of your foot, which is ideally the energy rolls through your foot and you launch from your big toe. If you don't and you come off the ground early or you don't want to get to your big toe for whatever reason, you're going to create a vector that's probably not completely straight. And so you have to counterbalance that sideways drive or a vector that's not completely straight. 
so this is where you may get some crazy arm movement or some jaw movement or some kind of crazy thing in the hip because really you're, you're looking straight ahead. You know what your target is. And when the foot comes off the ground funny, your body is going to move so it can make it toward that target. So what we do is we try and do drills where we're going to make you drive through to that big toe. And so this is where the single leg clean comes in. And I know there's all kinds of stuff on the internet about single leg clean. Uh, but really, I think the goal of it is to learn how to drive to your big toe and get your knee up. So it's kind of that stumble reflex. Uh, you know, bring your knee up, come off your big toe. Uh, Bosch believes, and I agree with him, that you know things happen so fast when you sprint that if you can train the end result, your body's going to learn how to find it. So once we learn how to step through and get to our big toe, by putting a target on the wall and you know, take your time. Then we try to create an environment where you're going to challenge that. So you're kind of ingraining that ability to get to the big toe. One of the things we do is we take an Airx mat you step on the Airx mat and you do the clean on the Airx mat. So you have that instability on the ground and your body's constantly trying to find, you know, where to go. Uh, we also use water bags. Uh, and so you'll clean the water bag. The water's constantly moving. And so you constantly have to find that middle ground. Uh, so where there is instability in, a, in the ground or in an implement, uh, your body has to create that stability. And so that's one thing that we do. Uh, you can take that into a, what I call a boom-boom drill, which is just a high knee, you know, a switch of legs. Uh, and I call it boom-boom drills because that's the sound that I want you to make when you hit the ground. Um, we can create all kinds of instability, you know, either in your torso, you know, you can do halos over your head. You can stick your arms in funny places, uh, carry a water bag, carry something that's going to make everything upstairs unstable. So your lower body has to be stable, or I can create instability on the ground and make your ankles that much more stable. So this is where I'll use an Airx mat, or we'll put all kinds of different mats you know, old pieces of track, small boxes and things like that where your body has to be perfect or else you get hurt. You know, and it's kind of interesting. I, I think about some research I saw a long time ago and I don't even know where it is anymore, but I, I'm always looking for stuff. And in fact, I think this was pre-internet days where you pay some guy in Livonia, Michigan for transcribed Russian research, things like that. I remember reading that the Russians are going out in forests and sprinting full speed through a forest. Because you didn't know what was coming, so your body had to carry yourself a little bit higher. And if you think about what the role of the, the lateral chain of the hip is, you've got to carry your body up. And so just from a safety standpoint, you kind of drilled that perfect running form. You know, you don't want to put your foot down funny because you're going to roll your ankle. So your foot is trained to be as stable as possible because inherently you know from seeing a forest that you really don't know what's underneath all that. And I've always wanted to do it. I'm going to take my son out one day. My son's going to be my master guinea pig. He's just getting old enough where I can start doing stuff with him. So he's going to be the kid that's blindfolded and runs so we can see where he's actually pushing to when I take away his target. And he's going to be the kid that runs through the forest. And we're going to see what happens. If he gets hurt, nothing can happen to me. It's my kid. <laughs> I was about to ask you, when are you going to start having your entire track and field team running through a forest? I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I don't want to risk it. I get too nervous, especially when we get to outdoors. Do I really want to do this? I, I don't know. Someone might get hurt. But you got to, I want to know. I got to see. Maybe I'll go do it. 
it's probably not even the hurting aspect. Imagine if one of them got lost in the, in the far in the woods. <laughs> but Montini High School, there's a forest right next to the track. I mean, it butts right up, and I'm always thinking, man, all I gotta do is just hop the fence and go. That'd be a great workout. I'll set some laser beams up through the forest, see who gets through the forest the fastest. But no, I can't do it. If something happens, I'll get in trouble. Chris, I'm going to throw a little curveball at you. I know uh, I sent you a couple things prior to the podcast, but I have decided to do things a little bit differently uh, recently. Um, so if I were to term this next session it'd be section, it would be getting to know Chris Corfist. So Chris, what is your favorite pastime hobby to do? Uh, I play my guitars. I play guitar and I play bass. I play, I've been playing music since I was eight. So I've been playing guitar and bass for 40 years. And as you saw earlier, I have quite a collection. Yeah. The collection is really quite extensive. How about your favorite movie? So I can't do that because I have to go genres there. Okay. So uh, let's, I'll narrow it down. Favorite comedy then. Okay. Blues Brothers. And since you're a history teacher, favorite time period in history i hate to be i hate to say this but it's usually whatever i'm teaching because i have to be really passionate about (laughs) when i get up and teach um but i'm old school civil war world war ii i mean that's what brought me to history originally anyway uh this year i'm kind of in a civil war thing i've been reading a lot of civil war stuff what's the what's the latest civil war book that you read oh i'm reading I just finished, uh, I'm reading one on Stonewall Jackson right now. Uh, and then I hate to say this, but I'm reading Empire of Cotton too. Uh, just because I have to, you know, it's a great book. It's what I teach. It's interesting. Uh, I, I know to most people that's not that thrilling, but it gives you an, it, an insight into w- what was going on there. I was going to say now the actual uh, serious question. So when it comes... Not that those weren't serious questions, they were. Uh, <laughs> but um, so it definitely seems like from a strength conditioning standpoint, high schools are starting to get either more part-time or full-time strength conditioning coaches with individuals that ha- have a background in this. It's not just your random football coaches doing it. So for anyone that's interested, either gain on the high school side, whether it's to be um, a coach, like a track and field coach like you or a strength and conditioning coach, what is a, like a good way to get involved with your, with your local high school? How would you recommend they reach out to administration? Well, I would start with a specific team because uh, you have to understand the dynamics of a high school. Every head coach is master of their own little rock and they don't want to have other people come tell them what to do. I know I'm going to piss a lot of high school coaches off about that, but it's true. Um, you know, they're, they want to be in control. So if you come in and start telling them, you know, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're not going to go very far. Uh, they're going to say, no, this guy came in and told me this. Who does he think he is? I've been doing this for 25 years and this is the way they did it back in the 1950s at uh, junction road with bear Bryant. And that's the way we're going to do it. Uh, so you got to be diplomatic and I would find someone that's looking for help and then provide that help. Because I'm sure I've pissed a lot of people off. I piss people off every time I come in because uh, I do things differently. So that would be the best way. And, you know, it's it's an investment, especially the way funding is going for schools these days. Uh, space is hard to come by uh, with more and more the growth of more and more teams. 
you know, rugby, lacrosse, things that didn't exist 20 years ago. Everyone wants space. And so like what happened to me this morning, I'm supposed to test. I mean, this is the end of our, our winter off season, you know, indoor track. We're running 40s. I brought the 1080. I brought my speed light. You know, I've got all my top gear here to get data. And who's in the field house before us? The baseball team. And you got to be kidding me, the baseball team. And I look on the schedule. Crap. They, 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 had, they were scheduled for this day. So I had to come up with something else to do. Um, so you got to be prepared for, you know, can you train a team in a closet? And what, what can you do? What's your goal? And you got to come up with three different ways to, to figure out how to accomplish that goal because you may not have the equipment that you want or the space that you want or someone else is in the weight room or, you know, it's crappy outside and, you know, you got to go out in the street. So those are, as a high school coach, those are things that you need to be ready for is you've got to be able to change on the gear. And I think more importantly, from a coach, conscious coaching standpoint, uh, you can't let the kids know that your day's been wrecked because once they say, they see you go, Oh crap, I, where's my, I can't do my stuff. What am I going to do today? It's a blow off workout for them. They know you're off and they're going to, well, we're going to be off too. I mean, you've got to be, yeah, this is what we're doing today. Yeah. We weren't going to be in there anyway. This is what we had. This is what I had planned. And this is what we need to do today. Uh, so it's really quite, uh, you know, you got to be ready to move and you got to be a leader. You've got to let, you know, let make kids think that what you got going on is the thing going on because with, you know, whether it's podcasts or internet or magazines and things like that, there's kids getting pulled a thousand different directions. You know, YouTube's horrible uh, with you know, the agility ladders and all that different stuff that you that, that they see people doing and they think, well, that's what I should be doing. Uh, who is this guy, you know, coming up with this stuff? You know, you've got to be, you've got to gain their trust and let them know that, hey, what we're doing is really much better. When we had our, our PR in Columbus, uh, we were with the Jets staff and <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but they were laughing about why Instagram is so great. It's because so they can see all the horrible workouts that they're guys that aren't with them that they're doing. And they showed, I mean, they got out their phone and showed <laughs> stuff. And it's like, wow, that's, that's, uh, that's something else. Yeah. So that's maybe what you can, those are some quick tips, uh, and be flexible, you know, and you may have to meet some coaches halfway. I mean, there's some coaches that, you know, they've got things that are a foundation of what they do. And even though we may know with our knowledge of strength and conditioning and speed training and all that stuff, it's probably not the best thing. You know, you've got to bend around it and you've got to make the best out of some decisions that some people make. At my high school at Hinsdale Central, I kind of train track and, and football together. It's kind of all one big thing. You know, we know we get the field house every day at 530 in the morning. Uh, very rarely do we have competition for it then. Is it the best time for us to sprint and do power work and jumps and things like that? It's not. I know that but it's what we can get and it's consistent. And I think that's, a, uh, I'll take that trade off. Uh, and maybe when we get outside and it's warmer, we'll go outside. Uh, and then we won't have to go so early in the morning, but you know, if I get consistency and I, and I'm gathering data, you know, I know it's the same every time. 
you know, the surface is the same, all that stuff. And that's really something that you gain as you uh, get more real world experience. You realize that everything is not so fairly gray about things. It's not so black and white as it is in uh, textbooks. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's it's never the textbook thing. You know, just think about surfaces. You know, when I'm at Montino High School, our surface is horrible. Uh, we are on tiled floor. Uh, someone who owned a tile company donated tile like you have in your kitchen you know, fancy Italian tile to the whole school. That's what we run on. And maybe once in a while we'll get the field house, which is kind of this slick rubbery surface, which is completely different. And if I'm getting data or even times and things like that, there's no way I can compare, you know, you know, dude, you're you're off today. You know, your times aren't the same. You need to take a break. I don't know because you throw that surface into play. You know, it's, it kind of throws everything off. So again, it's going to be a lot of feel, and uh, you kind of go with the flow and go with your gut. I think that's something that, you know, and I see this especially with my students in class. You know, we've bred, we've trained and taught students to be these, you know, followed by the book, here's a worksheet, fill it out type thing that we've completely taken feel out of coaching. You know, go with your gut. You know, what do you think is going on here? How do you, you know, you know sometimes you got to throw it out. And, and go with what you think. Uh, if you saw what I plan for my track season, it's on one piece of paper uh, for the whole season. I don't know what's going to happen three weeks from now. I don't know if this kid broke up with his girlfriend. Uh, I got one kid now. He's my best sprinter, two-time All-State, 100-meter dash, 200-meter dash guy. Uh, he failed his vision test to go to Annapolis, and he's wrecked. You know, all the scholarships are gone. <laughs> And now he's, he's wondering, what am I going to do? You know, I got to think of good workouts for him. It may not be what's on paper. Uh, so I'm going to get something out of him, even though we're trying to deal with his wrecked life. Yeah. So you got to think on the fly. You got to go with your gut, uh, go with the flow kind of thing. It's kind of like surfing. I've never surfed, but I'm going to imagine that, you know, you get a good wave, you go with it. And sometimes you got to pass on some, and sometimes you got to make the best out of crappy wave chris I, I really appreciate the candid answer for both of those questions i mean i think it was good to get a perspective from a person who is not just a strength and conditioning coach but is also a teacher and a i would say a skills coach or a uh, team coach because um sometimes as a strength and conditioning coach you just see it from one perspective and you don't really see it from the perspective of the track and field coach or the football coach or the soccer coach who whoever coach it may be. Chris, so if anybody wants to get in contact with you about anything you said in the podcast, what's the best way they can do so? My website is Slow Guy Speed School. It's not a great website. I mean it's I had someone make it. It's just I don't keep it updated. Um, it's got my contact information. It's got some pictures on there. Uh, I made some DVDs a number of years ago that are now just downloads for uh, old workouts from the DB hammer days and some other stuff that I created. And then there's some running drills stuff that I have on there as well, but that's a good way to contact me. Um, I'm usually pretty quick about responding to emails. Otherwise they build up. I put a little time every morning to respond to emails. So people don't want think I'm an idiot or not a nice guy or too arrogant because uh, I'm a coach like everyone else. And I have questions for people too. Uh, and sometimes they don't answer. And I know how they, those people feel. And when I was a young coach, I was a guy that emailed, well, 
when I was a young coach, there was no email, <laughs> uh, but would call people on the phone and, you know, I'd show up at your door and, you know, I was very great, grateful for all the time that everyone gave me. And I want to give that back to people as well, because, you know, I can't help people get better if I don't answer questions or don't help people understand. But at the same time, I don't have time to write multiple paragraphs because uh, I do get a fair amount of email every day. So if I'm short, uh, I'm very plithy. I get to the point pretty quick and uh, I will answer your question the best that I can with the time that I have. Sounds good to me, Chris. I appreciate you taking the time to come on this podcast. I know that you're a busy guy um, and I appreciate you sharing about RPR, about how you use the 1080 sprint and um, also how you go about um, manipulating the environment with your uh, high school athletes. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it was nice chatting with you. It was a good chat too. It was a pleasure having you and I hope you have a great evening. For all of you around the world that listen to this podcast episode, thank you. To show some love, make sure to head over to iTunes to leave either a rating or review. It only takes a couple of seconds. For any show notes, make sure to head over to my website, www.historicperformance.net. Thank you all in advance, and I'll see you guys next week.